The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gabfest for September 30th, 2018. The Do You Have a Drinking Problem, Senator Edition? We are live at the Capitol Factory in Austin, Texas. In partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival for Day of Live Slate Podcast, I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. And after one of the most dramatic and grueling weeks in American political history, there is no one I would rather be with than my two co-hosts. So to my immediate left is, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. She's the, the, Ann, the Ann Richards of political podcasting. And then to her left is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning, who's the Lyndon, the Lyndon Johnson, perhaps, with the LBJ of political podcasting. Huh. Huh. Should I and show Rick you my Perry. gallbladder scar? <laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. next time. Yeah. That's on this week's GabFest, the Kavanaugh nomination in purgatory, what will result from the FBI investigation? How can the country recover from this past week's fury? Then we're joined by a special guest, civil rights activist Ray McKesson, who will talk to us about the state of political activism and how political activism is connecting to electoral politics. And then America is on the brink of the single largest voter enfranchisement since 18-year-olds got the vote. We will talk about Emily's quite brilliant new article about the movement to allow former felons in Florida to vote, which they should be allowed to do. I mean, not to tip my hand, but that's what I think. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And although this is weird, because you're a live audience and I'm about to talk about another live show that you almost certainly won't be able to get to, I need to pitch this. So, Slow Burn is one of the most popular podcasts in America. It's a great show. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, we are all huge fans of that show. Uh, I think all of us have, have, at one point or another, been spoken on it. Um, and it's going on the road. So Leon Nafak and his producer, Andrew Parsons, are going to go to Chicago, San Francisco, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Portland, Oregon. And the, each episode is going to feature an all-new original slow burn story exploring the mysterious forces that steer history and they're going to do in Portland, for example, they're going to focus on sexual harassment, power dynamics, and the treatment of Monica Lewinsky by the media. And Dan Savage is going to be among the guests for that show. Our very own Emily Bazelon will be guesting at the New York City show. So tickets are limited. Go to slate.com live to get more information before they sell out. Brett Kavanaugh is a very good Catholic, and so he recognizes that he is in purgatory, which is that he is neither in the hell that he might deserve to be in. The hell of the DC circuit. It's not really that No, the hell that he might deserve to be in if he committed the crimes that he's alleged to have committed, nor is he in the heaven of the Supreme Court. He is somewhere in between, and then that somewhere in between is populated by a lot of G-men, I imagine. So as we tape here on Saturday morning, I, what I imagine, maybe this is not true, and Emily will correct it, that there, there are teams of FBI agents fanning around out <laughs> to the country clubs in Bethesda and... and uh, Lacrosse no games. No inch of Chevy Chase will be left unexplored. Exactly, <laughs> checking Zillow floor plans madly, but um, to determine what they can determine about whether the accusations made by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford in the, that astonishing hearing this week uh, can be confirmed more than they've been confirmed, or whether they keep, they can find out no more. So we've we've just had a, an epically 
interesting and difficult few days. Um, Emily, I would like to start with you on the question of what this FBI investigation that Jeff Flake has, has held up the vote for, what could it find? How, how is it conducted and what could it find? I interviewed Eric Holder at the festival here yesterday, and I asked him that question since he used to be in charge of the FBI, and he was confident that a week is a decent amount of time. He said there are 94 different FBI field offices, and they know how to do this. They will start by interviewing the people who Christine Blasey Ford has identified as her memory of having been at this get-together. And then there's this calendar entry from July 1st from Kavanaugh's calendar that you referenced that talks about him having brewskis or skis, right, he wrote down, with some friends, and he named those friends. And the timeline is consistent with Blasey Ford's account. Doesn't mean that it necessarily happened, but it's consistent. Obviously, they're going to want to talk to Mark Judge, who's been the kind of missing figure in all of this. So I think that there's some fact-finding to do, and I've been struck that reporters at this point have been doing it in their own investigative way, but obviously without the power of a subpoena behind them. And it's one thing to tell a story to a reporter, false or true, and another to lie to the FBI. So it will be interesting to see if anyone's story changes. And then the second thing that Does I the think... the FBI have subpoena power? I thought they don't have... I, I guess think- they don't, but they, you know, they start to stand for law enforcement. There are certainly consequences, as we know, from the guilty pleas in the Mueller investigation for lying to them, right? And then I think the second thing that's really important is the scope of this investigation. Are they also going to look into Deborah Ramirez's accusations about Kavanaugh's time at Yale? And if they do that, will they start talking to all these people who say Kavanaugh is misrepresenting himself in terms of his hard drinking, the kind of drunk he was? Um, And then some questions about his credibility that are larger could start to emerge and some of his self-representations, I think, could really unravel. I guess if you worry about, you know, the widening scope of an investigation, you could question the wisdom of that. But to me, it well, seems important for confirming a Supreme Court justice. Well, that's right. And then the question, then, then it becomes who does what with what is delivered. I mean, the reason you wanted a neutral fact finder to deliver, to deliver these facts before the questioning started was so that all the, the, the members of the 21 members of the committee could have a basic set of facts to... Uh, at, pose their questions about. And that would have taken care of a lot of the ground that was covered in the actual question asking and kind of sets and establish some basic facts on those veracity claims about about the yearbook and about Yale and all of that. I I don't know what happens to all of that now, though, if it comes back and they say, well, he he misrepresented the amount he drank here and there. Is that... um, do the majority of the committee just kind of say, look, what he drank in high school, that's all they proved, Right. Right, and then you'll have a question. I mean, this is really, as far as we can tell, up to Flake, Murkowski, and Collins and how they decide to assess right. if, whether they Whether they feel the standard has been do, met. Do we know if this report that the FBI will issue is going to be public? Will we see it? And in, in what form might we see it? I don't think we know, know for sure. I, I mean, know. the report in the Anita Hill case was released, and or certainly people talked about it. Well, that's because right? it came out before she testified. Before she testified. Um, I mean, I think all of these questions are... To be determined. One right? other thing. One other thing we should note is we're listing the things that might be investigated. Two other things that um, uh, Senator Klobuchar mentioned in the course of her questioning. One is this question of when Judge worked at the Safeway, which just cordons off the time period a little better. Um, 
What? I'm just just the, the 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 ludicrousness and the tragic ludicrousness that we're talking about. Where was Mark Judge's Safeway bagging job? What right. dates well, was it at the I, Chevy I, Chase Safeway? But, but I think the important. reason it's the reason. No, it's I important. know it's important. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're in a universe in which it's important. We're in a weird place here, but that's. I mean, yeah, that's one of the weirder places. Actually, but the re- we should explain why it's important. It's important because one of the and we can talk later about what constitutes a hole in a story and whether having a hole in your story is evidence that it's weak or evidence, in fact, that it's precisely the kind of trauma you've described because the way the brain works is you have deep and acute memories about some things, but then no memory of other things that would that might be characterized as holes and other people might see as the necessary way the brain works in trauma. But one of the questions is, what's the time period? And so she remembers seeing him at the Safeway. This puts it in a more limited time period. The other thing Klobuchar mentioned was interviewing her husband about whether she mentioned Kavanaugh to the husband as a way of establishing whether she has mentioned this all along. So, Emily, one of the things that came out, so on Thursday, I think there were these two halves of the day. There was uh, Dr. Ford's incredibly compelling, emotionally persuasive testimony, and then there was Brett Kavanaugh's incredibly compelling, uh, emotionally wrought, and I think, you know, he was very passionate testimony. Um, and it was sort of, I think the end of the day, Republican senators were sort of like, okay, they're, you know, they, you know, we just have these compelling, uh, competing visions and we're just going to push him forward because we, we can't possibly know. And, it, and, but there is this, I think this narrative that has developed in the last couple of days or this understanding that's developed in the last couple of days that, that actually what's astonishing about Kavanaugh's testimony is how full of lies it was at the time. Do you want to talk a little bit about, there are things that which he seem, seems to clearly have lied about just in small ways in this testimony, which suggests that maybe there's something larger that he could be lying about. Yeah, I mean, he misrepresented the drink, the legal drinking age in Maryland at the time. It had already been moved to 21 by the time he was a senior. Um, that was a fudge. Um, what are some other ones? Oh, the whole, his yearbook page, his explanations for all the, like, you know, bad weird yucky stuff in the yearbook all of it was implausible sort of to the, yeah, the point Renata, of the, the Renata, Renata stuff one, right all of it utterly implausible yeah and also all the uh, like his devil's triangle ex- there were all these just things that demonstrated that he was at least then presenting himself as like one of the cool drinking buddy people in the high school now all of it's being waved away as very innocent I mean I found his um, description of his own drinking habits in college to be completely at odds with lots of people who knew him at the time. And in particular, there was this weird moment where one of the senators asked him when, how many beers is too many? And he mm. said he didn't know. I thought that was really odd. I well, feel like the, the, everybody knows. Didn't he, say, didn't he say whatever the, the, charge. Whatever the charge. charge said? Yeah. Right, but that's, I mean, maybe he was being self-protective, but I feel like most people who drink socially have some right. idea of how much they should drink. I thought that well, but, was really so, strange. But do, but, uh, maybe but, I'm but too you guys take these it. lies. So, so I think we can, we can say for the purposes of this podcast these are lies like the, the 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 mention of renata was not meant to be a you know a nice you know compliment to a classmate who they just wanted to praise and single out for her kindness and generosity we can we can by the way she stipulate that she wasn't we, a, she couldn't have been a no, classmate because it's all boys but actually that's not unimportant because you could imagine a co-ed school of the kind that i that oh, you would I never went. get away with that you couldn't get away with it well because, no but at a co-ed school you could imagine because you're in classes all the all time with them you would have a perhaps right. more friend-like relationship when it's all boys and all girls as you may remember from having gone to an all-boys school the the, that was not but, really. So if we stipulate, okay, he's lying. He's lying about that. He's lying about what these, you know, devil's triangle means because he doesn't want to say it means 
two guys having sex with one girl. He doesn't want that to say that in front of his children, in front of the world. He doesn't want to say that he was drunk on weeknights when he was in high school. Does that, does that mean that the larger truth or the, the large story that we were concerned with, which is did he sexually assault Christine Blasey Ford, is likely to be untrue? Like, do these things, does it necessarily imply that? It doesn't necessarily imply that, but when someone starts to stress to the truth and misrepresented about small things, you start to wonder whether they're telling the truth about the big thing. The corroborating evidence is shaky. Not to mention that the incentives for, you know, who would be lying here are clearly the incentives for him to be the party who would be lying, and all the emotion that was present in his speech could be explained by how much he wants to be on the Supreme Court as well as his possible innocence. Um, but not to mention that if you lie under oath and you want to be a federal judge, yes. like that does seem a disqualifying Yes, that was action. my, right. I mean, I think you can make an argument that his veracity is so much um, at, in question at this point that for the job he aspires to, that's a huge problem. And to just take that one step further, he made this very Trumpian move this week, right? It was full of, you know, tribal rage, going back to the Clinton era, nakedly partisan, but also just like furious and resentful and full of, you know, kind of white male entitlement. Um, And I see politically why he made that move, but it exposed him to the charges of misrepresentation. And it also suggests that this very Trumpian approach to facts is now going to be infecting the judiciary and the Supreme Court. And for me, that is kind of one of the worst elements of all in, in this, that you would have someone on the Supreme Court who would be willing to be play it so fast and loose with the facts. And I think it's to a different degree than Clarence Thomas. I mean, we may think that Clarence Thomas lied about in denying the charges that Anita Hill brought, but there weren't all these, uh, well, I don't know, maybe there was some of that, and well, I'm, but it well, just still is distressing. One thing that on, on that point, uh, that I found strange just from a purely strategic level is, and I'd like uh, either one of you to help me think through, you know, if you are wrongly accused, you're going to be emotional and, uh, and, and, and at your wits end. And so I'd like, uh, there were some people who read his performance even from the minute he started talking and said, well, that's the way somebody who was caught doing something awful would try to defend themselves. And so how one distinguishes from how someone caught doing something awful would try to defend themselves and how someone legitimately being, who feels right. legitimately falsely accused would defend themselves and how you find a difference between yeah. just behaviorally. But putting that aside for the moment, what seems strategically weird about making the political argument he made is he had an emotional argument he could make, which is I've been wrongly accused, look at what this is doing to my family, my reputation, I've had to sit here for 10 days and take this pounding, be accused of gang rape and putting quaaludes in drinks and all of that and not be able to defend myself, which is an emotionally based argument. By then taking the political argument, you, do, you expose yourself to what you're saying and you occlude what it seems to me is your strongest case, which is I am the wronged party here. The minute you take it in, and by the way, you had a whole group of Republican senators who were going to pick up the political argument on your behalf. But don't you think he did it because in the moment, it was either attack the Democrats or attack Christine Blasey Ford, right? Who's the villain? There has to be, if you're going to talk about yourself right. as Oh, wrong, the press can be the villain, which he did, which is like, I got you people claiming this and that, and it's running on the air, and it's, I don't think you necessarily have to. Imagine he I, said everything he said, but just excise the stuff about the Democrats. I, I mean, I think that there are two pieces to that. One is that one of the key audiences for that uh, 
that speech, the opening speech he gave was the president. And he wanted to make sure the president was going was to gonna back him. Pull. And one way to make sure the president was going to back him or signal to the president that he was, you know, still in was to, was to be that emphatic. So I think mm-hmm. that's one piece of it. I, uh, just going to your other question about whether his de- what his demeanor signals, I, I'm, I guess I'm of the school that I don't think you could read too much into it. I think it would be if he was innocent, fully, if he's fully innocent of this, I can imagine him having just the same sort of rageful and, and impassioned reaction as, as, he do- as he did, and I assume he's not fully innocent. So, so I, don't th- I, don't th- I wouldn't hold that against him. I would hold the lies against him, but not the demeanor. Did you feel that way also Although about... Although a woman in the same position could never get away with any of that. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, that was like a raging double standard that was present. Did you feel the same way, though, in terms of giving him a pass for his demeanor when he was, for example, sarcastically asking Amy Klobuchar if she's ever blacked out? Because I felt like the mask started to slip in those moments and that his partisan, you know, kind of attack, attack pass from the Ken Starr investigation, which we've seen glimmers of in some of his memos was suddenly on display in a way that was very different than the demeanor, the calm, jovial, affable, judge-like presence he had previously presented. Well, civilization is a mask we wear, right? I mean, for everybody. And I, I actually feel like... <laughs> and now, what's going to happen next? What was put on those breakfast tacos? I don't know. <laughs> no, but it's, I honestly think, like, if, if, you're, if you're, in fact, public action for the entirety of your life is calm and collegial and reasonable, and yet there's an element of you that is a beast, I don't think that means you're a beast. I think it's like, it means you are a human, that you, and that you, you control. I don't think, I, I guess what I would say is, like, I don't know that you can say that the Brett Kavanaugh, who is rageful and sarcastic and nasty, and partisan is the real Brett Kavanaugh. I guess what I would say... We're we're all a mix of things. I worry, though, about him being an embittered Supreme Court justice. Well, that's the thing that's happening here, is you're you're taking the ugliness and partisanship of uh, our political life right now, and you're now going to, if he's confirmed, implanting it into, into the Supreme Court even more so. We can go down the line, Bush v. Gore... Clarence Thomas on the on Merrick Garland, you can you can, but it's going to take it up another level too, which is why. Uh, and we should note here, by the way, it was an extraordinary contrast it, when you listen to Dr. Ford try to be precise about the use of of specific adjectives and whether they were within the confines of her description and recollection of this night. Uh, I mean, the precision with which she talked and tried to be correct about things was amazing given what she was being asked to do in that committee room. And he did not, though he is in a job where precision is really important. Supposed to be a value. Um, and is one of the things upon which he's being judged for this job. Um, he was really, he was, he was much, much sloppier than she was about things where, let's say you don't know, you are supposed to say, look, I don't know, it's somewhere between here and here. Right, and if you think of institutional legitimacy for the court, we were already in this very politically polarized moment in which we were the end of the era of the swing justice, a world of five conservative Republican appointees versus four basically liberal Democratic appointees. And now we have this cloud and this moment where the country is just riven over this. I mean, that that is just going to be tough to swallow if he ends up on the court going forward. But do you think that the 
that there's a case to be made, and I, I'm never, I'm not kind of a heighten the contradictions kind of person, but that actually having a justice who is, con if he gets confirmed, who who is so controversial, who is so untrustworthy, who is such a source of uh, rage for people on the left, that actually that uh, illegitimacy, that delegitimization could be good in the sense that, that there is this notion that the Supreme Court is this holy priesthood, which you you and your Brethren, brethren and sister, and promote, and and to ha and to remind us that actually no, it's a in some ways a political body. It is not. It isn't holy. It isn't above everything. And that actually, what we go out and, and have to do is get in the game, is go out and engage and win in electoral politics and win in activism, and not rely on oh, the the priests will solve it. And that this this takes away some of the the reliance that people have had on that. Well, I think you also, to further your argument, could argue that the more politicized the court seems, the more people will go to the polls as a way of making change through elections, which is more democratic anyway. Um, so I guess there are, I think, two problems with the thesis. One is just that he'd be on the court for a really long time and have a lot of power. And so unless the Democrats are going to come back into office and, you know, court pack or court balance or in some other way change the composition of the court, the consequences for the country are really just significant. And then the other question is whether we are better off with a nakedly political court that we see as another political branch or whether we need to have some group of people who do this thing called judicial review that we see as nonpartisan and removed one step from politics. We've relied on that image of the court certainly since the 1940s and it's been a real pillar of our democracy. So sometimes, you know, when I'm feeling frustrated but, with um, people's but, insistence on seeing the court as apolitical and they go too far in that direction, I feel like let's just admit that it's, you know, Bush versus Gore, nakedly political decision. And yet, while the popularity ratings of the court took a deep dive, they came back within a couple of years and now they're around 50%. And I don't know whether we're better off as a country if every single elected branch of government's approval rating is at like well, but, 16. But if the, if the, if the, if that branch of government or if that particular arm of that branch of government is so out of step with what the actual people of this country want, right. it is illegitimate, isn't it? I mean, if they are, you know, believe that you shouldn't have a right to arbitration, if they believe, you know, you, 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 you shouldn't have a right to abortion, if they believe that, a, you know, a law, a health care law that's passed is, is not legitimate because of some, you know, backwards ass interpretation of, of some statute and we can't mandate that Medicaid, you know, states states adopt this. Right, and, and then the rhetoric... Then it's an illegitimate institution, well, isn't right. it? And then to keep that's going, then the rhetoric of like, here are these five men making these decisions, particularly that affect women's lives, and look, two of them have asterisks and black clouds hanging over them from sexual harassment and assault claims. Yeah, I can see why that's politically salient. I just worry a little bit about the institutional shakiness of it and yeah. just how it all plays out. Yeah, I don't like the institutional shakiness either. Because <laughs> well, you got to have one place where you, where even though it's not perfect and isn't even isn't a place where it's been drained of politics, it never has been, right? 
you still need some place where they're trying a little harder to get to uh, a reasoned decision than everywhere else, yes. where the where the momentum yeah. and drive is to get to something else. Right, right but it's but not it's, like the political branches have been doing such. I know, but it's like, job. don't you think our hope? I mean, I, I have that. I I'm an institutionalist. I'm a conservative in that way, and I I guess I just have my hope. Uh, is being crushed by the experience of living with the decisions that the court actually makes and then the thought about what a Kavanaugh court would do. So, I don't know. So, I, one other thing I... But you wouldn't, obviously you wouldn't say that about same-sex marriage. So, the court is able to still make decisions based on American values and the Constitution that are outside of the... Of, of that's that a, part that of is the a great example. That's a great example of one that I certainly felt Good about yes. Although, but I think people on the right felt exactly the opposite. <laughs> so right. Well, but even with same-sex marriage, it's important that there were a number of state court and federal court decisions before yeah. Obergefell. A number of state ballot measures. Like we had an incremental set of steps that took place before the Supreme Court made a national right to same-sex marriage. Uh, I wanted to hit one point. Maybe you have something else you want to say before. No, we I have many finish. things. So I the have one. one thing. Okay. Well, the one point I wanted to make, which is to take it in a different direction, but there was this moment during the Kavanaugh uh, hearing on C-SPAN, which I was not watching, but I just read about afterwards, where women were calling up to C-SPAN's phone lines and just recounting their stories of uh, attempted you know, rape and other, other forms of sexual misdeed by men towards them. And then I've just been talking with women in my own life and friends, and the realization that you know, an enormous number of women have been victims of this. And I would say, like, probably, I mean, I'm just going to make a number up, but let's say 60% of women that I know have been victims of some form of this kind of sexual assault. And, but what that means is that there's an enormous number of men, just an enormous number of men who've done this. Like, because I don't think it's 60%, if it's 60%, I don't think it's like, you know, 1% of men have done it to everybody. It means that, that, it, that, like, in this crowd here, right. you know, there's 75 men <laughs> who have probably, you know, have done this. Maybe they didn't even know they did it. It may be, it may be actually an ignorant and, like, just a mistake and a misunderstanding as far as they're concerned, but for the, the woman affected. What are we to make of that? What are we to do with that? Well, I mean, the last, what, eight, five years have been on with young people a reckoning about exactly this and trying to change the incentives for boys and girls, men, young men and women, so that um, men have some fear and some um, sense that there is a limit. I mean, I now feel, and maybe I'm oversimplifying the time periods, but I now think of the 80s and 90s as this time in which there were uh, no rules. There was lots of, you know, sex happening among young people, lots of hanging out without adults, a fair amount of access to alcohol and, like, some other drugs, and no fear from boys that they could get in trouble for anything. I don't think the boys I went to high school or college with ever worried about be, having someone accuse them of sexual assault. I mean, my boys ha- who are teenagers have a healthy fear of that, and so do their friends. Like, they think about it. It's like a real... And I, you know, I'm, I'm not in favor of like people running around scared for no reason, but I think it's okay. I think girls and young women have borne the burden of that fear and that sense of shame and worry for a long time. And I'm glad to see it evened out. So maybe those numbers will start to come. Can I make a difference? I was just remembering back to the William Kennedy Smith trial in 1991, which is the high-profile case on this where he was acquitted in the end. Um, 
I don't know what people took away from that, whether young boys looked at that and said, I better straighten up, or they thought, well, he was acquitted, so, you know, the rules are all still intact that, that you described. Uh, David, on your point about one of the things, when we look at this, what's happening, we've got the wrong venue in the Senate to adjudicate some of the most fraught and difficult questions in the culture right now and a set of facts that are complicated. So it's a, you look at it and you think this is a mess. There are going to be no winners. But what, it seems to me one of the great things to come out of this is the number of women who've told their stories, um, including my wife. Um, and uh, the number of people who call into the sexual assault hotline is up 142%, uh, Senator Leahy said, you know, courage is, is contagious. That's amazing. That's, you can't fix, that's not going back. And the, and the next generation of men or even this generation of men will behave better, I think, as a result of this. And a lot of that is, you know, people said, well, what happens, we talked about this, I think, on our show right after the testimony. Um, you know, Dr. Ford came, testified, and maybe it won't mean anything. It means a hell of a lot. It has changed the culture in this incredibly positive way already, full stop. No matter all of the ugliness that is to come and has happened, that is one thing that is, comes out of this that's been amazing. Yeah, I agree with that. I was going to say one more thing about the politics looking ahead. So if you're Murkowski Collins Flake, what you want is clarity, you want, yes, this party happened, this guy did this, at least this party happened. Some clear corroborating evidence that will not only mean you don't confirm him, but that your colleagues will agree and the nomination's withdrawn. Or you want something that clears him. And you really, for the three of them, what you really want is to have his name cleared so that you can vote yes, right? All these are three Republicans. They want to vote for this guy. What is going to be really difficult is if there's something in between, yeah. right? And that will be hard on the country, hard on the, those senators, um, and just sort of a, a really, th- that's the, the sort of risk here. But at least we're having some attempt by the government to do a responsible job of figuring it out. Speaking of that, Emily, as you think about this, and back to David's point again, is that there's a, obviously what's happening here is there's the facts of the case, and then there is this larger cultural thing that's happening, which is that people are recognizing how prevalent this, these incidents are and how many people have been for so long silent because, of the, because they felt they couldn't talk about it. Can you, in that cultural moment, still interrogate the facts of the case and believe it is a, still an open possibility that... Judge Kavanaugh is being totally wrongfully uh, accused here. I mean, I think you have to be able to ask that question every time and someone makes an accusation because you can't, you can think about all the reasons why women victims rarely make false accusations and you can weigh that in assessing a particular accusation, but you have to be able to check and verify before there are going to be consequences, right? I mean, if you're someone's friend who's coming to you, it's not your job to be interrogating. But if you're in any kind of decision-making position, um, whether it's the press deciding to publicize something, the FBI, the Senate, a judge, you have to be able to ask questions. And you have to be able to maintain the idea that he is falsely accused, even if you accept the larger notion that this happens a great deal and that people don't report a, a, you know, a lot of the time, perhaps even the majority of the time, you have to be able to hold those two things. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, to me, the concept that people are presumed innocent is sort of above all else. Now, I do think that when you're talking about elevating someone to the Supreme Court, yeah. the yeah. standard is not beyond a reasonable doubt and you can decide to weigh the facts and with a different kind of balance. Can I just say one other tiny thing and we'll wrap up? But 
Um, it seems to me for a lot of the Republican senators, they've landed on this position, which is Dr. Ford was compelling. Uh, she, she no doubt believes exactly what she thinks she believes, but it's not him, which relies, it seems to me, on a key piece of data, which is that Magic. people... Well, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, it relies on the idea that you can have an acute memory and be totally and totally wrong. And there's lots of evidence about how acute memories make you right, which makes you remember things super detailed because of the way the brain chemistry works, which Dr. Ford talked about. Is there any evidence or any scientific support for that other view? That you have an acute moment and you completely misremember. And you like put someone else's face yeah. on that? Because no. it seems to me that that... The... I mean, I just... This particular Republican, there are people. The, the one lesson from Anita Hill, the Republican senators have learned, is like, let's not attack this nice-seeming woman who did such a good job testifying. The door is closed. She is saying, "I am certain it was him." So to believe her is to believe her about that. And their like crazy Ed Whalen doppelganger theory has not panned out in the slightest. And they need to. And I think Klobuchar said this: like, to respect Dr. Ford is to respect that part of her memory, too. All right. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And the bonus segment for today's show is our Q&A with our audience here at the Capitol Factory in Austin. So go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are thrilled to have a guest with us today, and our guest is none other than DeRay McKesson. You know him. You have ID'd him because he's in the back in his, his distinctive blue, Trademark blue. blue vest. DeRay, DeRay is, of course, a civil rights activist and the host of the podcast Pod Save the People, rival podcast, but we'll, it's okay. One big family. One and big family. Yeah, and he's right. also the author of a, this new book, which you should check out, On the Other Side of Freedom, awesome so, which he's, you will be signing content. later today. <laughs> so I'll, let me start with a question for you, DeRay, which is you've helped build a movement of activism around critical issues, around police misbehavior uh, in particular. How does that 
activist movement connect to what we see in the politics today, which is a huge uh, push around electoral politics? How are those two things connected and how are they different? Yeah, think about, you know, I've always thought about this idea of protest is telling the truth in public, right? We knew protest, and we were in the street in St. Louis in 2014. We knew that protest wasn't the answer, but what it did is it created space for the answer. That if we hadn't been in the street around Mike Brown's death, people literally would have been like, oh, this was just like another day. And we were like, no, we refuse to let people do that. When I think about this link to electoral politics, it's an understanding that, like, we can't just fight the people on the inside. We got to be the people, too. And I think people, like, get that at scale now better than they did a long time ago. And two, it's like this idea about what does it mean to imagine? I think so much of what we do in protests is like help people like think of a world that they haven't seen. And that is sort of one of the challenges with the left and the right is that the right is always engaged in this, this like messaging of nostalgia. It's not a hard thing to do. On the left, the best of us are always trying to help people imagine things they've never seen before. We're always trying to tell stories about things you've never lived through, healthcare, education where everybody can read and write like we've never lived through that and that storytelling is actually just like hard work and that is what the best organizers do imagine mm. that we all lived in sweden yeah. <laughs> which which means cynicism is a killer you know because earlier david was saying why should we try and hold the supreme court up to a higher standard but if you if you believe basically everything is political and every, there is no higher hope then that saps what you're trying to do, right? Hoping things unseen. Yeah, we, we can think that things are political. I, you know, I think about the tax bill. It's like, if they can rewrite the tax bill on the back of scrap paper, then like, don't tell me that I, this is like a 10 generation thing, right? That like, we can get rid of mass incarceration in like a couple years. They did the whole tax code and like scrap, nobody even read it. Like that's crazy, Back the know? envelope calculation. It's like, don't tell me that like the things I'm working for take 200 years. Like you literally did the biggest rewrite in a couple of days. And you know, when we say the system is broken and people say, oh no, it was designed to be like that, my takeaway is that it was designed, right? And like, because people made it, people can make something different. So like, I don't, I don't get bogged down by that. I'm reminded that like, people made this up. And you think about even how it plays out, you know, I spent a lot of time around mass incarceration and the police. It's like, um, you know, I'll ask you, tell me something you can buy for $300. $300, a TV these days? A TV. Is that today in Florida, theft over $300 is a felony, and when you become a felon, you permanently lose the right to vote in Florida. That's wild, right? Somebody made that up in Oklahoma up until 2001, theft over $50 was a felony. You're like, people are just making this stuff up, right? And like, if you can make it up, I can make up something better. Like, that's my takeaway every day. Right, and so, one of the things that, and I'm interested if you think this narrative is correct, but it seems to me that the Black Lives Matter movement started more on the streets, started more about policing, about shootings and of unarmed black people and not indicting cops. And that to a certain degree has, not shift is the wrong word, but has grown to encompass mass incarceration, which is about indicting too many people of color, right? And then that leads to electoral changes like electing different local officials, a district, a different district attorney in St. Louis County, um, Wesley Bell, who just won. That seems to me like a kind of, there's a direct line from Michael Brown's death and the protests in Ferguson to his election. Uh, do you see that in the same way or do you feel like I'm, I have some of that wrong? Yeah, in some way, you know, we think about the difference between justice and accountability, that accountability is what happens after the trauma. Justice is the fact that people shouldn't have to experience the trauma in the first place. So we think about with the protest, the pro we were in the street around accountability. We were like, Mike Brown already died, right? And we know he should be alive, but he's not. So the best we can get at this moment is like some sort of charge or conviction. 
but when we step back, we're like, no, we're fight. The big goal is justice. We're like, people aren't sitting in cells. Preventing like the future. Pre- right. Like, that's a part of the work. So when we think about mass incarceration, it's like, what does it mean that we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined? That's like a wild thing. Even with the police, it's like a third of the people killed by a stranger in this country is actually killed by police officers. So, so like, we talk about these things because they're real. And policing has been an issue in civil rights for, like, a long, you know, we weren't the first people to discover this. We just had Twitter, right? Like, that's what made this moment <laughs> different. Yeah. Um, really- and I do think that the electoral piece, again, I think people understood that, like, it is not enough just to yell at the people in power. Like, you actually have to be those people, too. Don't stop yelling. This is, like, a both-and thing. So, like, yell, scream, stay in the street, and be the person. I think that, like, people understand that now. How do you think, given the way that Trump squats on everything these days and dominates everything, that... Understatement. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just... I'm the visual of Trump squatting. (laughs) I, I did that intentionally. But given that, do you think... How how can local movements and grassroots movements gain attention and gain the the necessary uh, enthusiasm and following when people are so ready to be you know to talk forever about Kavanaugh or to talk about the latest outrage that Trump has done? Can in, when Ferguson happened, it was a, a much quieter time politically yeah. than it is today. I do worry about like so much of the news that people experience every day is Trump that they are just missing all these other things that are happening. What is interesting is that most of the issues around mass incarceration and police are local. So there are 18,000 police departments in the country. This is one of those moments where we're like thankful that the DOJ doesn't really do a whole lot of management of police departments. Uh, at, at best, they can sort of restrict funding. I will say, the way Trump attacks the FBI, if I said those things in public, like they would be at my house again, but he's just like dismantling the whole thing. You're like, oh, that's interesting. And yet, now turning to him. Anyway, mm-hmm. go ahead. So <laughs> when we think about some of the promising things, is like in Austin, for instance, the Austin Oregon, we created the first public database of police union contracts in the country because we were trying to figure out like why are police never held accountable like there seems to there has to be something that we just don't understand and we found that there's like a different system so you think about California there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome like that doesn't make sense in Cleveland they destroy police officer disciplinary records every two years and in Austin, Austin has like this really interesting, Austin's one of six cities in the country where they, the city ranks bad on everything we measure with the police union contract. Uh, so the organizers here organized successfully to kill the last version, which was amazing. The whole city council unanimously voted against it. But Austin has a lot of crazy clauses, one of which is that all one, two, or three-day suspensions automatically are recoded later to be written reprimands. And you're wow. like, I don't even know... It's just like the game is rigged, right? Mm-hmm. So like we are no longer shocked that people are held accountable. We'd be shocked that they were given the way the rules play. And like that's stuff that happens at the local level. Well, and interestingly, it happens in blue places like Austin. And New York City has one of the worst secrecy provisions for police discipline. So yep. places where you would think there could be political energy around changing well, but, but, it have not necessarily done that. Well, but then to, just to ask the question again, okay, so uh, it's an outrage what's happening in Austin. Given that, it's happening. How can you create change around that if Trump is just oppressing everything around? I think this is like the central question of what does it mean to organize? What the best organizers do is create entrances and on ramps for people, that that is like so much of our work. So you think about Kavanaugh, you know, until this hearing, the hearing was so wild. But before that, when I. W- if I can't explain it to my aunt, then it doesn't matter. Like, she's always my bar. Not because she's dumb, but because she's just not sitting in front of CNN all day. So when I talked to her about Kavanaugh, my hook is not like Roe v. Wade. That's just not the way she is entering into the conversation. 
I'm like, I mean, do you know they're trying to hide the papers? She's like, they hiding the papers? I'm like, girl, they hiding the papers, right? <laughs> and like, that is my, she's like, they can't hide the papers. I'm like, I know. And then I'm like, <laughs> and then I'm like, he doesn't even believe in a woman's right to choose. She's like, really? I'm like, it's bad. You know, that is my, because I know. So like, part of creating the interests is not being so, morally whatever that I'm that I'm so self-righteous to think that my entrance is everybody's entrance so with the police stuff like here what the organizers did that was great there's another provision that says that if you don't file a complaint within 180 days it just can never lead to anything so there are all these people that were like that doesn't make sense and like that was their hook here so even in New York City interestingly you know with Garner so chokeholds are banned in New York City the NYPD can't put people in chokeholds Eric Garner was not put in a chokehold he was put in a stranglehold and did you know, do you know this? No. So the difference, you know, the difference between a stranglehold and a chokehold is that a chokehold restricts your airway. A stranglehold restricts your artery. God. You're like, oh. that is, but it's those sort of things that when you tell people, they're like, that makes no sense. We're like, call your city council member. You know, like, <laughs> and it's like, how do we help people understand the issue? Because we would say that once you get it, you should already be radicalized because like it's so wild on the surface. Is there a way to look at David's question, turn it totally around, which is that some people feel total impotence when they see what's happening in Washington. And that, and they want to be active. They want to participate in a way that matters. And therefore, they're knocking on the doors saying, what can I do to help? Do you find that the impotence people feel about national politics actually makes them want to get more energized in, at the local level? Yeah, I think so. I think that, pe- I think that we've sort of mastered the like, knock on doors, that sort of stuff. There's a lot of energy there in a good way, and like, people should continue that. I'm interested in like, how do we help people realize that they can be experts on these. The policy things aren't too hard for them to understand. You can say that like, the difference between a chokehold and a stranglehold doesn't make sense, and you don't need to be a doctor to be like, this is fuzzy, right? So like, how do we help? people like see those things even things like if i wasn't working on mass incarceration i'm obsessed with lead i'm like i'd be a lead activist yes are you obsessed with lead well yeah because of those amazing charts that show this correlation over time between crime rising and lead exposure well and all these reports about lead being found in everybody's water i mean it's it's still going on do you know why kids eat and ate lead paint chips like paint chips that had lead in them it was sweet because net lead is naturally sweet. I oh, have no clue. I'm obsessed with this. Really? Yeah, and what yeah. makes it so wild is that like there was a period of time in the country where the housing administration mandated that the paint and housing projects be lead-based paint. So if I didn't think there was a conspiracy before, I'm like convinced, right? <laughs> because there was this narrative that like parents were just like not good parents, so the kids are like eating the paint. It's like no, it's candy, you know, like. Mm-hmm. That's sort of wild. And how do we like unpack those things so people see how intentional this stuff was so they can like do something about it? Although I don't think they mandated that, I don't think they knew the damage of lead at the time when they were mandating that it be paint, painted with lead. It was just better paint. It was like the lead paint was better. I don't know. Turned... We weren't using lead paint in affluent white people's houses. We weren't like that. But well, no, because it lasted long. It was like it lasted longer. You didn't have to maintain And then you don't maintain it. And then it flakes and kids eat it. And then you've just hosed a millions of children and it's yeah so the push is that ridiculous. like it is uh, it, there's suggestions that people knew how dangerous that was much earlier than they started to strip it out of walls and they didn't care and like they didn't with care, tobacco right, right? Or... and what makes it so dangerous is as you know there's no cure for lead right so like right. the best we can do is therapy right. so you think about flint flint's had the biggest decrease in childhood literacy that we've ever recorded a 75 percent decrease in childhood literacy in flint which is wild wow. right and like the best we can do is put the kids in special ed and it's like mm-hmm. that is that's a cho- we allowed that to happen and how do we start to be honest you know people talk about truth and reconciliation and don't want to deal with the fact that the truth has to come before the reconciliation right and there are people that want to do the reconciliation without the truth but 
Do, I mean, do you think, going, going back, I think, to, to John's question from earlier, can people really ever come to trust those institutions of government, which, which actually do need to be probably the mechanism of, of remedy, or at least part, part of the mechanism of remedy? Well, you hope you can take them over, right? So. Yeah, you hope you take, so like, like you are trusting the people you trust already, right? That like all of a sudden they just have structural power. It's like, you, and you think about even people like, we don't know what, you know, it's only with poor people and people of color that everybody's imagination goes out the window. They're like, we don't know what to do. You're like, we already did it for white people. And you think about with Trump, it's like Trump gave $700 billion to the military. It would take $125 billion to take every single person out of poverty, right? It's never a matter of are there resources. It's always a matter of is there will. Can you quickly on the, on the, you mentioned, you know, people had been concerned about the police before, but you just had Twitter. Can you talk a little bit more about technology and the way in which that's helped in other ways? There's a lot more stuff that's on camera that people, you know, and that, that must be helping. Yeah, yeah. So the, the hard part about this is that we've won the awareness battle. People are talking about police violence, mass incarceration in ways that they've never talked about in public. The outcomes haven't changed yet, which is sort of the hard part. And I believe that, like, some of the reasons the outcomes haven't changed is that the system of policing just there's no accountability so like yeah you can put people in training and it's like but training's fine i don't know what training module you go to to not shoot a 10 year old right i don't know what that training looks like right we can put you in unconscious bias but like i don't know how unconscious the bias was right that like when the woman called the police on the two black men in starbucks that seemed pretty conscious to me so some of it is like we're letting people off the hook uh, but i do think that the answer will be the structural stuff and you know i've seen the good and bad of social media the first person ever permanently banned from twitter was banned for raising money to try and get me killed i've seen that and i've seen like the beautiful parts of seeing people who weren't being heard anymore all of a sudden like have voice so when you say it's not changing at what what are you talking about are there the some outcomes? things I'm, I'm I guess I'm yes I don't want false hope but I wonder if there are some outcomes that you do so, so for example I think tell me if I'm wrong it seemed like the percentage of shootings by police of unarmed people has gone down a little bit maybe ticked a little bit back up but looked like maybe that was changing a little bit. Yeah, so we contest this unarmed arm data. So if you get killed in the country and a newspaper doesn't write about you, you just don't exist in the data set. So any number any of you have ever heard, seen, is from the aggregate of newspaper reports because the government doesn't collect the data. So that in and of itself is like a nightmare. Problem. The unarmed armed coding is like police coding. So we would, you know, we you always wonder. are like questionable about that in the first place. And the database that you probably know the most is like the post database. The Washington Post, right? yeah. The challenge with the post database is that they only include on-duty killings that include a gun. I so see. Eric Garner's not in the database. On-duty wasn't a gun. Botham Jean, who just got killed. Off-duty Off duty and right. a gun, not in the database. So like the data piece is like also universe. sort of shaky. But what we do know is that the raw number is roughly the same. It's I like see. a pretty consistent. So you're not actually seeing improvement. Yeah, so geographically that. it's sort of moving a little bit, but St. Louis still has the highest rate of police violence in the country, so it makes sense that the protest started there. We do know things that like black people are actually more likely to be unarmed and not threatening in encounters with the police. So like black people shot by the police or killed by the police are actually like the people going into their homes. Like that's... That so is, the racial discrimination is still very apparent in yeah. that setting. And interestingly, in Texas, when we first started to do data analysis, it looked like there are some places in Texas where white people were being killed disproportionately more than people of color. And when we started to tease out the data, what we saw was that Latinos are being miscoded as white because it's just newspaper reports. So that's been interesting. And people ask us all the time, why do we focus on black people? Like, blah, blah, blah. And we're saying, like, we get it, right? Like, the police are, like, this. the systems are impacting a whole lot of people, but the disparities are actually so great that if we focus on black people and fix it there will actually fix it for everybody else necessarily. DeRay McKesson is the host of Pod Save the People. Check out his book, On the Other Side of Freedom. DeRay, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you, guys.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So our very own Emily Bazelon has the cover story in the New York Times magazine tomorrow, and it is, Will Florida's ex-felons finally regain the right to vote? And that is pretty uh, dispositive of what the article is. But Emily, <laughs> what's going there. on in Florida? Yeah, right. and why, why is this like a... a potentially one of the biggest changes in American electoral possibility in, in a generation. So there are about 6 million people across the country who served their sentences, did their time, and are not allowed to vote. And a million and a half of them live in Florida, the most in, of any state. And Florida, of course, is like our quintessentially purple state that is teeters on the edge um, in almost every election. So Three of the five last elections in Florida, the presidential contest came in either it was like the 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 the, the biggest gap was one point two percent in the vote. So these incredibly close elections, they happen for senator, for governor, they're five congressional races that are, you know, in the toss up column this um, in this election. So if you enfranchise a million and a half people, that could change the shape of the electorate. Um, and this ballot initiative, which um, the voters in Florida will decide in November, is an amendment to the state constitution. That means it has to pass by 60%, which is a high bar. And it both has this potentially you know, enormous electoral consequence, and at the same time, a consequence which most people think will benefit Democrats. Now, we can, that's a little complicated and contested, but I would say in close elections, it looks like that's probably the case, you know, depending a little bit on who registers and who actually shows up. So you have this um, measure which really could help one party, and yet in order for it to pass, there has to be bipartisan unifying consensus behind it. So what really interested me the most about this campaign was how you think, what your strategy is when that's your challenge. It has to be bipartisan because it needs 60% of the vote. Exactly. The poll five days ago had it at 71. Yeah, so there have been four polls, three of them over 70%. And in all those three polls, the um, the content of the amendment was described. So they didn't just say, do you support Amendment 4? Yeah. They said, this is a ballot measure to restore the right to vote to former felons. The fourth poll, which is an outlier, had support way down at 40% and a huge number of undecided people. But they just called and said, do you support Amendment 4? Right. What, what do you think the... Um and I think you should, uh, we've obviously got a uh, governor's race and where you have an African-American running on the Democratic side and you've got a senatorial race, which will be incredibly hot too. You couldn't pick a better state for uh, politics in this cycle and, and where it'll have a bigger impact. Can you explain the difference between older and younger ex-felons and why that makes the numbers messy? Yeah, so 
The older cohort of former felons in Florida is a whiter group of people and presumably a more conservative group of people. People that they're expected to vote more for Republicans and it's possible that registration and voting rates could be higher for them than the people who've gotten out more recently who are more diverse just because Florida's diversifying, uh, more likely to vote for Democrats. About 30% of the total disenfranchised population is African-American. So most people are not black. But when you have that many African-Americans who tend in Florida to support Democrats at a rate of about 90%, that's one reason why people think that this group as a whole could tilt toward Democrats. Is... um, One of the things I think is great in your piece is the history. Why is it that ex-felons are barred from voting. Yeah, I mean, this was super interesting to learn about. So we states like Connecticut, Massachusetts um, have had this kind of law since the early 19th century. And then a lot of states like Connecticut, the New England, Western states, a lot of 17 states got rid of these laws in the 1960s. So I put them in a different category than the South, where there is just a really strong pattern in a number of southern states, including Florida. We had the Civil War. It ended with, um, you know, the radical Republicans in Congress requiring southern states to ratify the 14th Amendment, which gave black citizens the right to vote with everyone else. You had to ratify to get back into the union. Florida did that. But then in 1868, they had a constitutional convention in which they passed a number of measures. First, first the sort of white conservatives like took back the convention from the Republicans who included a lot of black delegates. So there's this like very racialized power struggle. Then they put into the Florida Constitution a number of measures that essentially um, diminished the power of the new black vote. And one of them was to disenfranchise former felons. That is absolutely what that was about. And there are these connected, um, related provisions. It was the same time that the southern states were passing what are called black codes, which were laws that increased the punishment for minor crimes like vagrancy and petty larceny. And then they just like scooped up a lot of former slaves Um, you know, sometimes on invented charges, put them in prison, leased them out as convicts to the old plantations. Like that was to keep the labor supply going. And oh, by the way, disenfranchised all of them permanently. Um, And so when you see Reconstruction end in the South in 1876 and seven, this is one of the reasons it ended. And we think much more now about poll taxes and literacy tests as the way that, and, and violence, you know, lynchings, as these means of repressing the African-American mm-hmm. vote. But it turns out that permanently disenfranchising people who have any kind of felony record really has mattered along the way. Can I get you to explain two different currents for me? One is you have, um, I was talking to this pastor, um, uh, Adam Hamilton, who writes about how people are more anxious because um, uh, the president in particular ran for office and keeps talking about the level of crime and how American cities are, you know, hell holes and that that has had an effect in people's anxiety levels. So if on the one hand, um, people are being made anxious and it's showing up enough, it's not just rhetoric, it's showing up in behavior. On the other hand, you have polls that show 71% of people want ex-felons to be able to vote. Um, where are, where are the, what's the American value that is, because um, it seems to me it'd be easier for them to just be afraid. 
and just be like, no, I, that, I don't like it. Right, right. I mean, and in the past, we've seen that impulse so strongly. I think what's happening here is the message of redemption and second chances is a hugely powerful one. So Desmond Mead, who's the African-American activist who's really the heart and soul of this movement, gives these, I, I listened to him give a speech and like, it's hard not to be moved by that speech. He asks everyone to get to their feet and like stand with him if he thinks that that you know that people believe second chances and says like don't put that bell in next to my name like I did my time I paid my debt I want to be a citizen again we've all made mistakes there's something deeply resonant I think for a lot of people about that message and it's a message that um, is very consistent with evangelical Christian principles and so one thing about this ballot measure is it has the support of a number of Catholic and um, Protestant evangelical groups in Florida and that has in in turn pushed people like the Koch brothers to agree to support it. Now the Kochs aren't funding this ballot measure, but they're not coming in on the other side. And in fact, at this point, there is no organized opposition, which seems crazy given what's at stake for the Republicans. Are, are you afraid that, uh, well, I shouldn't yes. assume that you support this, but if this article comes out and President well, Trump it sees it, you know, the, <laughs> that Republicans are aware of this, that actually it's going to galvanize an opposition because everything is partisan these days, that there's going to be this realization like, oh my God, we could lose Florida. We better, we better mobilize against it. We better do something about it. I mean, I, yeah, that is possible. I guess I always try not to ascribe too much power to myself. I mean, this is like the big thing that's happening in Florida. Like presumably President Trump could hear about it from someone else, not... Especially not someone who writes for the failing New York Times. He to get... I've never mm. heard of him getting through a magazine just, article at the New York Times. He doesn't like, seem like a... Ma- he's not on the cover. Is he on the cover? He's it's not on the cover. There's no But reason. someone at Fox is going to read it. All right. Yes. No, that's true. I mean, it Have is Have you heard true. what this liberal, uh, Emily Bazelon, Bazelon has said terrible. in the New York Times? It's, right. Um, I mean... It is possible that by increasing the profile of this issue, there, you know, I somehow contributed to a backlash. I did think about that. Um, you know, I'm a reporter in the end, not an advocate, so I feel like that's fair enough if that's what happens. But it has been really interesting in the governor's race. So Andrew Gillum, who's the Democratic um, mayor of Tallahassee, he's guys like him. He's come out really strongly for Amendment 4. And, and, you know, that seems unsurprising, except that in the past, Democrats have been very wary of this issue. They didn't want to be labeled soft on crime or the party of felons. They were super nervous about it. Now that's starting to change. And Ron DeSantis, the Republican running against Gillum, has said nothing about this measure. He's been ducking questions for months, wouldn't return my calls, won't talk to the local media about it. And he is getting Coke money. So I wonder if um, there's a connection there and he's willing in the short term to um, stay out of this for the sake of trying to win or at least not alienate the Cokes. Yeah, well, it's also because he has he has not just gotten the support of the president, but he's sought most closely to to um, repeat and and utilize the tactics that that candidate Trump used. And so you would you would think that incentive would cause him to make some notion of make some note of this. But he hasn't. Yeah. So, I mean, it 60 percent remains a high bar. So I look at those polls and then I still think like, wait, when people actually get to the polls and they think about this, if they see it in partisan terms at this point, what will they do? But um, 
can I say one more thing that I found really surprising? So Desmond, who I just mentioned to you, went on Tucker Carlson's show a couple weeks ago with um, the political director of the campaign, whose name is Neil Volz, who turns out to be the guy who like made the Jack Abramoff scandal happen. So uh, Volz was a aide to Bob Ney, the congressman who like went down in Abramoff land. And Volz is the person who cooperated with the FBI and pled guilty. That's why he has a felony record. Um, now he is, um, you know, very much like a reformed person who has found God and done an, a lot of work with homeless people and people in recovery. And he's part of this campaign. So he and Desmond are this like great pair. So they go on Tucker Carlson's show and Tucker starts out, I think he he thought he had them. He kept saying like, why should I trust you to pick the president? Like you guys did bad things and like we don't trust you to serve in the military or carry a gun or serve as cops. Like why would we want you to be picking the president? And, you know, Meade and Volts had some answers. They were sort of basically trying to stick to their message. And then they said something about second chances. And Tucker said, well, actually, I have a friend who was a felon. I just had lunch with him. Like I do kind of get second chances. And then at the end, Tucker actually said, well, really, the problem is that you're just asking for this. Why aren't you also asking to be armed and serve as cops? And it's like, really? It was just, it's a very funny piece of tape. Anyway. Can I ask one factual question, then one quick closing uh, question, which is, uh, the factual question is, if I'm a felon in, in Texas, let's say, and I move to Florida, am I barred from voting in Florida? Yeah, state That's- law. Well, you register where in the state you have to abide by the state law provisions wherever you live. Uh, my right? felony was in, I've served my time, I've done my time. Florida does not think that All you right. get to vote, sorry. Um, and then final question to wrap this up. So one of the, I think the most interesting things you, you pointed out was that there seems to be evidence that voting reduces recidivism. What is the, why would that Yeah, so actually this was one of those pieces of data where it just looked too good to be true. In 2009, when Charlie Crist, then Republican, now Democrat, when he was governor, he automatically re-enfranchised 150,000 people. And there's a report from the Parole Commission of 25,000 of them. They looked at them over three years, and their recidivism rate was like 12%. The average in Florida is like 30%. It's like, all right, this is, I mean, come on. And these people were re-enfranchised automatically, so they weren't self-selecting. And I think the reason was this group of people um, had committed relatively low-level felonies. DeRay was just talking about that 300 Mm -hmm. felony. So they were like the people who only stole, you know, $300. They were the people who were in prison for possession of marijuana. So I think that's part of it. Also, they weren't on probation or parole. And so all the going back into prison, the churn of, you know, minor violations, they weren't subject to. And yet, it's really interesting that the rate was so much lower. And there's a political scientist at um, the University of Pittsburgh named Victoria Scheinman who had just done an actual experiment with 150 former felons where she helped some of them register to vote and then asked, and some she didn't help, um, and then she asked everyone about their trust in the government and their trust of the cops and the criminal justice system. And the people who registered to vote so, showed significantly higher levels of trust. And so she says, like, look, this is linked to pro-democratic attitudes and people's feelings of citizenship, which is really interesting. And, you know, we'll see in Florida what effect it has. Maybe. I guess we don't know whether we'll see or not. We'll see if it passes. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a, a ski. You're having some brewskis. <laughs> Tonight, 
Emily, what will you be chattering I like about? I just talked endlessly. You don't I'll do. Pass. I'll do my chatter okay. first because mine's depressing. Um, <laughs> so there's a remarkable story in the Washington Post um, by Juliet Eilperin and Chris Mooney yesterday, and it uh, found in deep in a deep in a document that the Trump administration's just put out um, in a national high, highway NHTSA National Highway traffic safety administration. Yeah, like the, the gift that Ralph yeah. Nader gave us. Yes. So there's a 500-page report they were doing about um, why they shouldn't keep fuel economy standards going up, why the Trump administration wanted to keep fuel economy standards uh, frozen and, and not make cars be more efficient. And, they, and it was the conclusion that, this, that the Trump administration reached was that, well, it looks like temperatures are going to go up seven degrees because of climate change, and so anything we do won't won't have any effect. And so here you have this administration which has denied that climate change matters, that they're going to do anything on it, that it's, you know, real. And it's using, you know, the most extreme model for what could happen with, with the climate to justify not acting. It's so cynical and, and vile. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope we change that electorally, I suppose, is what I hope. Emily, what's your chatter? I am uh, interested in the, the latest event in the lawsuits going on that are challenging President Trump under the emoluments clause, arguing, right? So there are, there are two separate lawsuits. The one where there was a ruling on Friday involves the one that's congressional representatives, um, including my senator, Richard Blumenthal, but uh, like 200 Democrats suing President Trump as members of Congress. And the judge, the district court judge, this is like the first level child judge, said that they had standing to sue yesterday. And the rationale here is that the president was supposed to inform Congress that he was accepting these emoluments and ask Congress for permission. And he did neither of those things. And so Congress as a body should be able to sue in order to make sure that it's being, its powers as a branch of government are being respected. And so this is only the first step in this lawsuit, but the potential consequences of winning are significant. They could ask for a lot of discovery, all the different financial transactions that are going on related to these hotels, to all kinds of Trump properties that foreign governments are giving money to the Trump organization to. Um, and so that could really have some big ramifications down the line. Most notably, the the, the tax returns. I mean, it's a yes. can, can opener to get the tax Exactly. Returns. It's a can opener to get the tax returns and also to find out about the way in which the president is profiting from being in office through his business activities. Um, to me, I mean, I just find the, the evidence of corruption to be so unsettling. And I love the idea I have from the beginning of dusting off this clause of the Constitution that we've like never really enforced, never thought a president was really going to force us to. I mean, the precedents from this are like 19th century acceptances of gifts, like, you know, I can't, an Arabian horse or something. It's just not, it felt very unmodern. And now it seems extremely relevant. J.D., what's your chatter? Uh, well, speaking of things that um, are totally irrelevant and not modern, um, I am going to talk about Jeremy Bentham, who you all may know as the um, as one of the founders of utilitarianism. He was also an amazingly Outside ahead of his... linebacker for the Texans. What? He, he, I was just trying to connect with the Texans here. Like they... Texans, you see, can smell bullshit miles away. <laughs> That was the rare pander, no pander, you see. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, Jeremy Bentham. Um, so he was also an ad- advocate for abolition, women's rights, the decriminalization of homosexuality. So he was very much ahead of his time. Um, he was also fun at parties. He had a pet bear. He had a black cat named the Reverend Dr. Lankham. It's like Dr. Doolittle. Yes, and he named his walking stick Dapple and his teapot Dickie. Um, but what made him particularly fun at parties is that he carried in his pockets two glass eyeballs that he would sometimes show to his guests. And the reason he did this, though, is not just because that would be fun in any instance, but because he believed in dissection of bodies, which at this period in 1832 was not legal in England. So he couldn't dissect bodies unless it was a criminal who'd been executed. Um, and or so, you robbed a grave, which they or did. You robbed, or you robbed a grave. But that was not... You were, that made it complicated. So the idea was... So, so he, he died in 1832 at age 84, um, and when he died, he asked, uh, well, first of all, he did, well, first thing was he gave 26 of his friends mourning rings that contained his image and a piece of his hair. John Stuart Mill got one. But this is the other thing he did. He, gave, he wrote out very careful instructions for his friend, Dr. Southwood Smith, and these were the instructions. My body I give to my dear friend, Dr. Southwood Smith, to be disposed of in a manner hereafter mentioned, and I direct that he will take my body under his charge and take the requisite and appropriate measures. The skeleton will be caused to be put together in such a manner as the whole figure may be seated in a chair, (laughs) usually occupied by me when living, in the attitude in which I am sitting when engaged in thought in the course of time (laughs) employed in writing. I direct that the body thus prepared shall be transferred to my executor. He will cause the skeleton to be clad in one of the suits of black occasionally worn by me. The body so clothed, together with the chair and the staff that I used in my later years, will take charge of and for containing the whole apparatus will be caused to be prepared in an appropriate box or case. So he wants to be put in basically a clear phone booth. Um, Now, this is why he wanted this to happen. If it should so happen that my personal friends and other disciples should be disposed to meet together on some day or days of the year for the purpose of commemorating the founder of the greatest happiness system of morals and legislation, my executor will from time to time cause to be conveyed to the room in which they meet the said box. (laughs) So essentially, to sum up, he wanted himself drained and stuffed and tidied in his Sunday best so that when his friends got together to roll around his ideas, he could sit there with them. <laughs> Dr. Southwood Smith did all of this. He performed an illegal dissection. He scooped out the soft inside bits, filled them with straw, wired the skeleton together with copper wire, bolted him to a chair, and then bolted his head to the top. The problem is that the embalming methods used by the Eastern Polynesians that were used on his head did not work. So his head ended up looking like a dissipated potato. So instead, his friend Dr. Smith put his head, put a proper plastic head, a wax head on the top, put him in the phone booth. He's good to go. His friends met. There was Mr. Bentham uh, in the living room. Okay, 50 years later, they're doing the annual maintenance. They're cleaning up the moth-eaten clothing. They're resetting the stuffing, and they discover three things. He's wearing socks, which means whoever dressed him really was attending to the careful details. Two pairs of socks, I should note. Apparently, it gets cold when you're dead. Uh, Second thing is that um, he was wearing underwear. So he was truly dressed in his last... The third thing they found was that his head was in his abdomen. So the head that had shrunk was, was in the abdomen, which, which led to the expression, get your head out of your stomach, which, which no one ever used. Um, okay, but the story doesn't end there. Then, basically 180 years after his death, which, uh, in which he took these careful um, measures to make sure that, that the body would be able to be dissected for the purposes of science, they 
took the body out of the box and the head, and according to BuzzFeed, when they did so, the body's in a bell jar, or the head is in a bell jar, and it apparently, when BuzzFeed uh, reported when it was opened, it smelled like vinegar and feet and bad jerky and damp dust. Um, uh, Which sounds like a really depressing sommelier describing your wine. (laughs) What would you like to pair with the peaches and cream? Anyway... But why did, they, why did they need this body? Because they were testing to see if he had been autistic. Hmm. And because his philosophy, the, the scientists had decided, was based around the idea of banishing chance and the consolidation of certainty, which they associated with a certain kind of autism where, you don't, where, where one of the aspects of it is that you don't like chance or uncertainty in the world. And so it's unconclusive, inconclusive, I should say, whether he had autism and whether this amazing um, contribution he's given to philosophy was a part of that. But we see 180 years after his death, somebody who was ahead of his time was still ahead of his time. So. Wow. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Thank you to Faith Smith and Kristen Pulse for bringing us to Austin. Thank you to the Capitol Factory and the Texas Tribune Festival for having us. We will come back anytime, Austin. You should follow us. You should follow us on Twitter at, at Slate Gap Fest. You should tweet Cocktail Chatter, your ideas for Cocktail Chatter to us at at Slate Gabfest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and our great guest, Aray McKesson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.